Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. We've been in Joshua. We've been in the Old Testament for a while. And uh, today we're looking at some, like, some legal portions, some like legislation in the Old Testament. And I just wanted to talk for just a minute, just very briefly about my history, um, kind of reading this stuff. Arguably, things like this are some of the most challenging parts of the Bible for us to appreciate, us to understand, for us to even make sense of. So I don't know if you know, my story is, um, I was actually converted reading the Old Testament. Somebody had given me a Bible, some guy I worked with, uh, Dave Swinburne, some of you guys know him. Um, he gave me a Bible, and I was reading this stuff in the Old Testament, and I was, I was like chancing and stumbling upon parts that where I'm like, oh man, this is, this is amazing. I don't know what it means. And so I'm like a brand new convert, and I'm, I'm trying to study the Bible, I'm trying to make sense of it, and so I figured I got to start in the beginning. I started in Genesis, and I'm reading through Genesis, and Genesis is kind of straightforward because it's just a lot of, of family histories. Crazy family histories, um, but family histories. I can make sense of that. You get into Exodus, and I understood Exodus. I'm like, oh, it's getting, the action's starting to ramp up. This is cool, you know. It's exciting. You get to, you get to the Ten Commandments. I was like, I've heard these before. And then you get like an inch, one chapter past the Ten Commandments. You have all these regulations uh, like, that are about the civic life of ancient Israel. And I was like, oh, okay. I guess I'll keep reading. And, and I didn't really know what to do with them, a lot of this stuff. I didn't, I didn't have an easy time to appreciate it and be sympathetic to it, possibly because I'm not a member of like an ancient agricultural Bronze Age society. So it was a little bit of cultural distance, you know? But honestly, I was... I was dumbfounded. I didn't, I didn't want to touch them with a 10-foot pole. I didn't know what to do with them. And so I'm reading through the book of Exodus, and I'm in like chapter 21, and it's, and it's talking about slavery. And I know, I know, because I was an unbeliever, I know that one of the principal objections and criticisms that people have towards the Christian faith is like, well, there's all this slavery in the Bible, all this stuff. You know? And that's how they talk, too. They kind of they growl when they say it. And so I'm reading this stuff, and I'm seeing, like, what's being described is really, it's like a seven-year labor contract. It's a seven-year contract of service. It's like enlisting for service for seven years. And it's nothing at all like the, the African slave trade that was practiced in, like, English colonies and in the Americas where, where, where Europeans would go steal Africans and bring them to America and sell them. You get to... Chapter 21, I get to verse 16, and I read this verse, and it says, Anyone who steals a man and sells him, and anyone who's found in possession of that man, both of them should be put to death. And I was like, oh, that's pretty clear. That sends a strong message. It seems like God hates human trafficking. I mean... Hate's a strong word. I don't want to overinterpret, but everyone who's participating in human trafficking has to die. 
And I can only imagine, you know, this a scene in history where missionaries come to the Americas and they, they happen upon like a slave auction. They're like, what do you, where did you get all these Africans from? What, what, you white plantation owners, what are you doing with these people? Oh, well, we have to kill you now, you know. Sorry, it's in the Bible. So, and I don't know if this is a common story for anybody, but from there on out, once I started to appreciate and have some sympathy for like this, these laws and these rituals in, in, the, in the Old Testament, and specifically like the first five books, what they call the Torah, once I started to, to, to get that, everything else was like downhill, comparatively. I mean, I was looking at other stuff. I was, I was trying to make sense of the, the Gospels and is Jesus historical or what? But when I got over that hump, I guess, everything else was like kind of just a down, downhill coasting. That was the hard stuff. And then, then that's when I started to move from like questioning and inquiring and trying to study and make sense of the Bible to being like, this, I actually believe this. I believe this is a word from God. I believe that, that I can trust in this. And what I started to see, you move through like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, and despite all it's, it's just, it's weird. It's so foreign to our culture. It, it is. But what you see enshrined in these, these laws, these rituals, these statutes, this legislation, is values. These laws and these rituals, they embody values. The Old Testament law is primarily about preserving what God says is valuable and rejecting what He says is destructive. And so, some of these laws even have, they have rationale. They have a, a reason. Why, why is this the case? And, and, and the part we read today, the cities of refuge, there's two places where God gives the reason for why. Why to make cities where people who, who accidentally kill someone can flee and find safety and find refuge. So one is, is Numbers chapter 35. I tried to flip to it earlier. I'm just going to read it right here off my, uh, my tablet. Numbers 35, 33, 30, 34 says, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. God's saying that bloodshed pollutes the land. In Deuteronomy 19, uh, verse 10, Lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving to you for an inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of the city shall send him and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well God through the law, through his instruction to his people, is trying to create a culture, trying to create an environment and sustain a society that shuns and rejects the shedding of innocent blood. God is calling Israel to, as, as a community, 
as a nation to embody holiness and to avoid the corruption, the defilement, the, 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 those things that come from violence and bloodshed. And this might sound strange because last week when Justin was here, he was teaching about Joshua, and he summarized the book of Joshua as something like kill, 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 some weird names, kill, kill, kill some more. Now, to be fair, to be fair, there's a lot of violence in the Bible. There's a lot of killing in the Bible. But I want you to consider something. One of the, the main reasons, right, we're talking about in Joshua, we're talking about Israel going into the land and, and executing God's judgment on the Canaanites. You're taking the land and you're executing judgment on the Canaanites. One of the main reasons why God sends Israel in to, the, to judge the Canaanites is because Canaan is a land, is a culture, is a society that's full of bloodshed. Justin talked about this. He talked about how the Canaanites, when they worshipped their so-called gods, they would, they would offer up their children to be sacrificed. And, and the land was filled with bloodshed. And it's... You just can't, you can't do that. You can't spill children's blood in a land and expect God to, to, not, to not take notice. And it's, honestly, it's not, it's not just the Canaanites either. Israel, it's, it, it, the scriptures talk about Israel learned from their neighbors. In Psalms uh, 106, it says, uh, in verse 35, it's talking about Israel and, and their tenure in the land. It says, they mixed with the nations and they learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Oh, I'm supposed to put this in my ear, right? Is that why it's not working? Oh my gosh. On this ear? I'm sorry. Highly unprofessional. Gosh. They don't, they don't do this at the west side. All right. I'm so sorry. That was... How come you guys didn't say anything? <laughs> oh my gosh, that was very unprofessional. That's all right. I don't work here, so you can't fire me. All right. Oh, that's terrible. Terrible. All right. I apologize. Listen, listen this, this is right in the middle of something pretty serious. They sacrifice their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts, and they played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. It's a, God's response to the Canaanites is very, very close to his response to the Israelites. If you learn from your neighbors how to sacrifice your children to demons, to idols, God's not going to ignore that. And so, in short, I, I don't know how, how else to, to explain this, kind of like this, this tension in the Bible, 
other than to say, it seems to me God hates violence. He hates violence. He hates bloodshed. And he's willing to use force to bring it to an end. I think the the classic place that you see this is in Genesis uh, 6, in the flood, right? God sees that the earth is full of violence and, and wickedness and everyone's going astray and he can't ignore it. He has to bring an end to it. And he saves Noah and his family. But the way he, he brings an end to violence is through force, is through judgment. So when we read like out of the law, when we read out of this, this Torah, this instruction, this legislation, it might be some, some difficulty trying to appreciate it because, you know, we don't have anything like it in our national history, right? We have the Constitution, we have the, the, the Declaration of Independence, we have the Bill of Rights, and we have like some national history, but they're not all blended together, which is kind of what you got in the, in the Torah, in the law. In the first five books of the Bible, you got, you got the history of, of Israel's origins, right? The, the history of God's covenant relationship with his people, and you've got story, and then you've got commandments, and you've got legislation, and you've got directions for worship and ritual, and more story, and and more commands, and it's all blended together, and we don't have anything like that in our national history. And one of the things we can see, though, what this law is aiming at is, is that the law, the Torah, is aiming at justice in an unjust world. Torah is aiming at justice in an imperfect, fallen, sinful world. It would be nice. It would be nice if, if, if the Bible didn't have laws about divorce, laws about theft, laws about swearing oaths, laws about murder. But we don't live in that type of world. We live in a world that's, that's filled with violence, filled with dishonesty, filled with theft. And so God, in his, in his law, in his instruction, He's aiming at establishing justice in a fallen world. He's aiming about protection against rampant bloodshed in a violent world. And so when we look at these these cities of refuge, um, I want us to to look at a, a few, grab onto a few key things and see what God is trying to convey, what God is trying to enshrine as being valuable as something that people should cherish and hold on to. And then I, I want to see too, like how does that impact us? What can we learn from that? Even though we're not, you know, late Bronze Age uh, Israelites, that the word still speaks to us across all this time and all this distance. So I want to go back to Joshua chapter 20. I'm just going to read verse 3 real, real quick. We're going to camp out there. That the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. So in establishing these these cities of refuge, God is, is providing a safe haven, like a place of asylum for someone who's, Someone who's in a, a, a whole lot of trouble. Someone who's in a heap of trouble. And, and God makes a distinction between 
uh, murder that's intentional, that's planned out, that's, that's, that's premeditated, and manslaughter, which is unforeseen, which is unintended. And so this is, this, is, this is a place where you see God's dual concern. It's concern for someone who's seeking refuge, who's, who's, who's looking for protection. And you, and you see also God's concern for justice, too. Um, you see, I saw, there's two places in the Psalms, and they're, they're right next to each other. And they, they talk about both sides of this coin. So Psalms 7 and 9. I'm just going to read a little bit out of there to help you get a sense of what people's experience was like. In Psalm 7, it says, right? Psalm 7, says, arise, no, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you, over it return on high. The Lord judges the people, no, I read this wrong, sorry. Psalm 7, verse 1. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. We see God's concern for someone who's fleeing from false accusation. We see God's protection for someone that needs asylum. They're running from, from unjust vengeance. And then in Psalm 9, right around the corner, in, in verse, starting in verse 7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. See, both. You see, God's concern for someone seeking refuge, someone fleeing from false accusation, and you see God not ignoring the cry of the afflicted, people who are seeking justice, people who have had a family member murdered. These cities, this refuge that God provides, is not a place where, where people can, can evade justice. It's not a place where people get off free. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card for murder. And so God establishes procedures and, 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 and protocol for establishing guilt. Because sometimes when people cry out for justice, they don't want justice, they want blood. They want revenge. And God wants justice. There has to be witnesses. We have to know what happened. We can't just go on with rampant bloodshed. And, and justice is not just about who shouts the loudest. And so in his law, in the community that God is building up, trying to establish with his people, there's no chance that anyone living in this community, whether they be an Israelite, whether they be a foreigner living there, there's no chance that anyone could think for a second that God's unconcerned about violence, 
that God's unconcerned about bloodshed. And so God, he gives refuge to people. God provides refuge for people in trouble. And and the way he does that, the way he provides that is not in a cave. It's not in some deserted corner of the land. It's not isolated all by themselves. God provides refuge for people in a community, in a city. He provides refuge with other people. And so in chapter 20, verse 4, it says, uh, he shall flee to one of these cities and he shall stand at the entrance of the gate of that city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city, give him a place, and he shall remain with them. Um, when God gives refuge for people in his community, he calls on them to do two things. He calls on them to confess their sins to one another. And he calls on them to make room for one another. When someone showed up at one of these cities of refuge, they don't get to sneak in unannounced. They don't get to to hide out anonymously. They have to explain their case. They They have to tell their story. Essentially, they have to make confession. They have to be known. Their stories have to be told. Some of these people might be here just purely accidentally. And some of these people might be here because of false accusations. But I'm willing to bet most of the people on the run trying to escape someone who's looking for revenge, the reason they're running is because they actually killed somebody. Maybe they didn't mean to. Maybe the other person started it. Maybe they were asking for it. But all the same, you're on the run, this person's on the run, and somebody's dead, and you've got blood on your hands, and someone's looking for revenge. And if, 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 they let that drive them into isolation. If they go all on their own and they try to flee and stay fugitive and stay on the lamb, man, they're toast. They're going to they're get found out. They're going to be discovered and they're going to be put to death. The only way that they're going to find real refuge is they got to come into this community, but to come in, to find that protection, they got to confess. They got to they tell their story. And I don't, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm in trouble, when I've done something shameful or hurtful, the last thought on my mind is like, let me go confess it to the elders. I don't, I don't move towards people in my sin. I move away from people. I start to resent the people who might ask me difficult questions or might expect me to be honest. That that's just the, the natural way that I, that I move. That's, the, that's the, the sickness of my sin. But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you the truth. I've had to confess many sins to, to one of the elders in particular in this church. And, and, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't, I, I didn't think it saved me so much self-destruction. And... Um, It was, I'd say it was worth it. I, I think it, was, it saved me from a lot of isolation. 
when you start isolating, that's when stuff really gets crazy. So just like someone seeking refuge, the only way they find it is they got to come into this community and they have, they have to confess. That's the way they find protection. That's where they find healing. That's where, they, they, that's where they're safe. Likewise, we need each other for help. We need each other for protection. And some of that comes by confessing our sins to one another so that you're not living anonymously right next to somebody. You're not walking around saying, hey, how's it going? Fine. When you're carrying around this terrible, shameful stuff with you that nobody knows about. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And I, I guess, I just don't, I don't understand why people come to church if they're not in trouble. I, I don't get that. I, I don't. There's so many other things to do on a Sunday morning, you know? And nobody's coming to this city as a refuge looking to go sightsee. Nobody's coming here to, to, to just take a walk around. People are running to this city, and they are, man, they are absolutely desperate. And if, if we in the church, man, if we don't know the trouble we have, if we don't have a sense of our own sinfulness and, like, how, how easily it is for us to hurt people, if we don't have a sense of our shortcomings, why do we talk about grace? What's the point? Why do we talk about grace if we don't absolutely need it? And the, the danger is, is, that, is that nobody would know. Everything would just, we just pretend like everything's fine. God doesn't want that to happen. God wants us to know one another's stories. And you, man, by no means do you, do you need to tell everybody everything. I would recommend that you not do that. That's not wise. But somebody's got to know. Somebody's got to know. And this is why, this is why we make room in, in our lives for people who are in trouble. We make room in, in our lives for one another. This is why we have discipleship group. Because if I confess my sins to a complete stranger, man, that's not going to do me a whole lot of good. But if somebody knows me and knows my story, and I know that they care about me, it's going to be easier and they're going to continue to know me and continue to walk with me. These people come to the city, they confess their sins, and, and, and God says, you give them a place to stay, and they stay with you. And I'm, I'm worried. I'm a little bit worried. Some of this is my personal concern for, for my own life, but I don't think I'm that unique. I'm worried that as a church, that we, if we don't do well in this, if we don't make room in our lives for people whose, whose life is, is really, really full of trouble, that we're, we're just kind of losing our identity and we'll just devolve into some social club. And I don't, man, I don't even think it needs to be on purpose. It's just where we at, our station in life, we tend to gravitate towards people who are like us. All the homeschool co-op moms are, are tight. You know, all the young students are, are tight. All the, the, the working guys, they know each other. The, the trouble is it wouldn't even be, 
it wouldn't even be deliberate, but it's very easy for people who are not like us to get pushed out, to be unincluded, to be kind of held to the margins. And that's not what, that's not what God is talking about. These people coming for refuge, man, they don't, they, okay, you can camp outside the city. You can come inside the gate, but that's where you stay. They give them a place in the community. And I don't know if you guys know this, these cities of refuge, there's, there's six of them. There's six cities of refuge, kind of spaced out evenly throughout the land. And all of these cities are what they call Levitical cities. And they were all places where the Levites would live. And the Levites were like, kind of like these custodians and janitors and like movers that they would, they would serve in the temple. They would serve in the tabernacle. They would serve in the worship of, the God, of God, but they were set apart to be holy, right? They did these mundane tasks like sweeping and scrubbing and carrying water and, you know, they'd have animal sacrifices. So someone had to drag off like all the entrails and stuff. It's a messy job, but God said, that's holy, you're set apart towards me. And so you got these vocational religious custodians living in this city. And God says, by the way, when, when these, these escaped killers, when they come from you, you have to welcome them in and give them a place to stay. The professionally religious with the fugitive killers. God did that on purpose. That doesn't match, does it? How would you like to move into a new city and you talk into your realtor and he's like, and they, you know, you ask them, what's the neighborhood like around here? It's, ah, oh, it's pretty nice, good schools. There's a, you know, a halfway house for convicted killers across the street. Sweet. Sweet. <laughs> what's the asking? But that's the way God intended it to be. I'm not making this up. This is better than I could make up myself. That's, that's the wisdom of God, right? It is. Um. Verse 6, let's keep going. Verse 6. He shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment. <laughs> God calls his community to declare judgment. I'm a little bit concerned this is going to become a very unpopular message real quick. The manslayer Right, the, the one who's seeking refuge, the one who's, who's on the run. He has to stand before the community. He, he has to tell his story. He has to make confession. He, for, and he has to stand for the judgment of the community. And yet, while he's facing judgment, he doesn't have to fear the one who's seeking vengeance. So these people, man, they, they, they simultaneously, they stand judged, and yet, protected, judged, and yet welcomed. Those seeking asylum, they, they find it, but it only comes through judgment. And my, my argument, my, my, I'm trying to persuade, because I know that there's a lot of, man, there's, there's Christians who love Jesus, and there's whole churches that, they, man, they pour so much energy into making the church feel like a, like a, this is a place where people don't judge. And I'm just, and the church should never be that. And I'm gonna, I wanna tell you two stories as to why. I'm, I'm trying to persuade. Two stories. The first is, is the story of, of the church 
um, the evangelical church in Germany on the eve of World War II. This church that's living in the shadow of, of Adolf Hitler and his, his, his crazy plans to try and take over the world and make it all German. And the church, by and large, is just, man, they, they just kind of go along with it. And it's to the, man, it's to the shame of Christians because they didn't judge rightly and wisely to be able to say, man, this is evil, absolutely evil. And, be, and part of it was a lot of Germans, they thought, they, I mean, they didn't see the whole picture. They're not looking back, but they see that, man, his economic policies are good. It's putting Germans to work, you know? It's, it's, it's recreating pride in German culture and, and, and German heritage. And so in a, in a move not to offend people, not to make people feel excluded, they don't say anything. I mean, that's a failure. It's a failure to judge wisely. It's a failure of nerve. It's cowardice to not stand up. And like, you're a madman. The other example is, is a lot closer to home. In the 50s and the 60s, especially in the South, there was a lot of good, white, evangelical churches that they didn't want to talk about integration. They didn't want to talk about racial reconciliation. They didn't want to talk about equality of the races before God because it was controversial. Because people would get upset about it and they don't, they don't you know, it's an outside issue. That's a failure. That's a, that's a failure of nerve. That's cowardice. The church is so, we're easily, we could easily miss the mark. So the question of should the church judge, I'm absolutely convinced the answer is yes. But how? That's the key question. How? How is the church to judge rightly and wisely? Does, that, does it mean that we, we, we cast, we point our fingers at some people and we say, you're bad and we're good, right? You're wrong and we're right. You're a, you're a liberal, right? Or this is, the other one is, I'm part of the 99%. See my button? Which I, I don't like that because usually the people wearing that button, on a global scale, you're not part of the 99%. You're a lot closer to the 1% than you know. They don't, they don't that math doesn't add up. So, but that, that's, you see how people, they draw lines. They draw lines. And they say, we're good, you're bad. We're smart, you're stupid. We're, we're moral, you're immoral. That's how the world judges. But there's a different type of judgment. And that, that's, that's what I hope can set the tone for the church. There's a different type of judgment, and that's the judgment of the cross. Just like an Israelite, they found asylum in the city after going through judgment. We find refuge. We find forgiveness. We find a place in the community, this this church, only after we come under the judgment of the cross. The cross has to set the bar. 
has to set the standard for how we make our judgments. The cross is the place where our sins, our sins are condemned. And, and it's where we are reconciled. The cross is, is, is the place where um, God judges our sin and he makes room for us. He welcomes us in. And you see that there's only, there's only one way to find refuge, to find asylum, to be embraced in God's welcome. And it's the first you have to come under the judgment of the cross. And this judgment, it doesn't cast us aside. It doesn't keep us out. But it confronts us. And it sobers us. And when we look at the cross, we have to see the depths of our sin, the depths of our own guilt. We see the, the good citizens of the world and the leaders of society, all of them conspiring together to say no to the Son of God, to say enough to the preaching of the kingdom. And they're all gathered together. And in that place, in that place, God exposes our sinfulness. He tells the truth about our sin and in that same word that judges us, we hear this word from Jesus, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. And so we're not, we're not forgiven from a, from a distance, right? We're not like, I can love you as long as you stay way out there. But Christians are, we're, the Bible describes us as being in Christ, in the Spirit, we are brought in to the very heart of God. And so, as his people, we should be able to, to judge rightly and embrace those under judgment just as we have been embraced, just as we have been under judgment. And as his people, man, we have to be able to judge. We have to keep that. What's, we have to be able to tell between what's true and what's false. What's, what's righteous and what's unrighteous. What's good and what's evil. And that takes, man, that takes courage and wisdom. But as we, as we seek out that courage to judge rightly and wisely and graciously, we need to also cultivate the courage to embrace people under judgment. I mean, not keep them at the margins. I mean, and bring them all the way in. And that's, that is always, that is always going to be a fine line. If we're doing that well, it's always going to be a fine line between welcoming and making room for people and, and, and showing love and declaring judgment. Gracious, wise loving judgment. And it's always, yeah, it's all, every, anytime you welcome a sinner, you always run the risk of, of seeming like you approve of their sin. And, and if you, you push people out, they think, oh, this, I mean, you're just, you're like the rest of the world. You think you know me, you think you know what I'm about, and you just keep me out. And so they come under the judgment of the world. They think they're under the world's judgment. That, who cares? 
That's nothing. When you bring someone in, when you welcome someone in, in love, like we were welcomed in in Christ's love, that's where our sin gets really condemned. That's where we come under the judgment of God, and God's judgment makes us family. That's a hundred times better than the world. The world's judgment is garbage. So that's my prayer, is that we would be able to do that. We would be able to do that. We would grow in that courage to, to, to judge rightly and truthfully and love and welcome and embrace. And um, it's, a, it's a hard task. It's a hard task set before us. In verse 6 again, it says that uh, he shall remain in the city until he stood before the congregation for judgment and until the death of him who was high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town, to his own home, to the town from which he fled. It's the, it's the death of the high priest that atones for the accidental death. That's the one, that's the, the death of the high priest makes restitution for that blood that's spilt. And through his death, the manslayer, the one who's, who's on the run, he gets to go home. He gets to return home. He no longer needs to fear vengeance. He no longer needs to fear punishment. He's been pardoned, right? His sentence has been commuted. The letter to the Hebrews says that we have an even greater high priest who by his death, his bloodshed, once and for all, cleanses us from all impurity and corruption. And his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The story in Genesis in chapter 4 is, is, is like foundational for violence. It's the story of violence between brothers. God gave uh, Cain a, a, a job, a task, a vocation. He gave him a task to, to cultivate, to be a farmer, to bring life from the earth. And, and the way Cain, uh, you know, carried out his job was by not bringing life from the earth, but, but spilling his brother's blood in the earth, by giving death to the earth. And, and God, he comes to Cain and he says, uh, where is your brother? And Cain says, essentially he says, I don't, man, I don't know. It's, it's not my responsibility. I'm not my brother's keeper. And God says to Cain, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. The blood, the, the, the violence in this world, it cries out for God's attention. It cries out for his, his making things right. Abel's blood cries out for vengeance. Jesus is Christ. Man, his blood cries out for our pardon. That's God's response to the violence and the bloodshed. Sending his son to suffer under that violence. Not, not, to, not to heap judgment and condemnation in our laps, but to reconcile us, to welcome us in, to embrace us into the very heart of God. Jesus' blood speaks a better word, a better word. So when we come to this table and we take this thimble full of juice and this little oyster cracker, it means so much more than just a snack at the end of service. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. It speaks to the God who pardons those under judgment. 
That's the good news. And, and my prayer is that we would be a community that's defined by that. We actually do it. It sounds good. It, it, in, in truth, though, you talk about sinners being reconciled, that sounds great, but man, sinners, they stink. When the, 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 the drunk guy comes, he comes drunk to your house, he rides his motorcycle on your sidewalk, sits down on your couch, and starts hitting on a woman in your community group. Oh, I hate that guy. I hate him. That guy's an idiot. And so am I. So he's in good company. So you make room for people like that. It's, it's, it's not easy. But, but what else are we going to do? What else are we going to do? So I ask, remember this. Meditate on this. As we take communion together, as we're nourished, right, by Christ's broken body, his shed blood, as we continue to worship together, let's close in prayer, okay? God, we thank you. We thank you that you have brought us together. We thank you, God, that you have brought us from so many places and that you have brought us into a community where we found refuge, where we found protection, where we found safety, God. We thank you for your church. We thank you for Damascus Road on the east side and, and on the west side. And God, we ask that, that you would keep doing this and do this all the more, that you would teach us and give us courage to obey, to, to make space in our lives for people who are in a heap of trouble. And we pray, God, that you would also teach us to love people enough to tell them the truth about sin, about judgment. And we ask, God, that you would do this in the midst of your community because that's what you want to do. Just make us cooperate. Teach us to reorder our, our values and what we cherish to love what you love, to cherish what you cherish, to say what you say, to pray what you pray, and go where you would, you would bid us to go, Lord. So, God, we ask that. We, we ask that you would do this. We ask in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. All God's people say, amen. amen.